Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're recording today's program before an audience at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Give yourselves a hand. Vladimir Putin famously said a couple years ago that the nation that leads in artificial intelligence will rule the world. He was reacting to China's announcement that they would be the global leader in AI by 2030. Businesses are the ones, though, that are making AI a reality. Amy Webb writes about them in her new book, The Big Nine, How Tech Titans and Their Thinking Could Warp Humanity. It features six familiar tech titans from the U.S. and three from China. Amy is the founder of Future Today Institute and a professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Great to talk to you. Thank you. I wanted you to get our heads screwed on a little bit about AI, first of all. Um, I think it, you know it pops up in the news, and it's gonna it's gonna be this thing that changes everything, or it's gonna be terrible and authoritarian, or it's gonna do all our chores for us. It's either heaven or hell with this stuff. How do you explain how we should think about this thing? That's right. So when it comes to artificial intelligence, there's a tremendous amount of misplaced optimism and fear. And that's because we've been living with the idea of AI for so long, whether it's the Jetsons or the movie Her uh, or Westworld or Asimov or any number of books that we might have read or shows we might have seen. The, the reality is that artificial intelligence is a lot more boring than what you've seen on, uh, on TV right now. We're surrounded by AI every day, all day long. Um, the spam filter in your email. Uh, if you text message back and forth with somebody, the suggested autocompletes, like those are tiny instances of artificial intelligence. When you back up your car and the car makes some decisions about whether or not to turn down the volume or the little beep beeps that it makes so that you avoid things, that's also artificial intelligence. So the reality is that AI is already here. It just didn't show up the way that we expected. That being said, there is plenty to be concerned about. Like what? <laughs> well, how much time do we have? Uh, so I, I think that the easiest way to understand this is that artificial intelligence is simply an umbrella term for technology that makes decisions for us on our behalf. Um, and it does that automatically using our data. So the very first thing that we should all be concerned about is who made those algorithms and what are they optimizing for? And do those people reflect our worldviews? And most of the time, the answer to all of that is no. So if that's the case, the outcomes of those decisions may not be outcomes that you like. All right. So what's a really bad example of that? Yeah. So a really bad example is uh, in Florida, there were two girls who were black who stole a bike, kid's bike, walking down the street, uh, got apprehended by the police. And a predictive policing algorithm system, so this was AI, made a determination based on their previous histories uh, and, and other things, and the process wasn't super transparent, decided that these two girls are probably going to commit crimes again. Now, around the same time, a white man committed a small theft, got arrested. That same system decided, you know what, he's probably not going to commit crimes again. So you probably have some sense of how this story turns out. Guy gets released, almost immediately commits yet another crime, which is one of many, many, many crimes that he's committed. The two girls, of course, you know, made a mistake um, and then, you know, went about their daily activities. The problem was that there was bias baked into these systems. 
All right, that's a uniquely American uh, application. And uh, in China, I want to talk some about China because uh, I, you know, probably like a lot of people here, I'm not familiar with the big business titans in China. There are three big Chinese companies that are at the heart of Chinese AI. It doesn't mean that there aren't others, but but these are the three: they're Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And in many ways, they are analogous to our. Uh, big tech titans in the United States. So Baidu is kind of like, you could think of them in terms of Google, sort of like search and also autonomous driving. Apollo is their autonomous driving system. Right. And Google, of course, has its own uh, Waymo, which is its autonomous driving division. Now, you were talking about Alibaba in the book, and it has something called uh, ET Brain City, which sounds entirely different than anything Amazon has, I guess. Um, They do city planning kind of in a way that makes me feel like it's surveillance. Yeah. So here's what I think would be useful for everybody to bear in mind. Um, All of these companies are technically publicly traded. These are public companies. Um, However, by virtue of the fact that they are Chinese companies, they are very much under the thumb of Beijing, which means that if there's a national edict or some kind of big initiative that somebody's working on, they are called to help out. Typically, these companies are not on their own saying, Maybe we'll build a a citywide surveillance program to pilot out some interesting new ways to keep everybody in line. And so Alibaba ended up buying the South China Morning Post not to imitate Amazon, but to do it as a favor. Is what we've been told. Now, I will say that the SCMP has written content critical of Alibaba. Um, and and they have have taken, you know, an examination of, of artificial intelligence. But I don't think that there is that division like you see with Bezos and the Post. All right. And Tencent that you mentioned, uh, that is more like Facebook, but they've got a slogan called Make AI Everywhere. Well, I don't know. Is that so different from Facebook? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) They don't say that. Yeah. Um, So Tencent is social in spirit, but they also have a huge foothold in gaming. They're also, of the three, the ones that are working on healthcare initiatives um, and they also have built out a sprawling payments network. All right. And w- when these three companies are doing business with the government in Beijing, and Beijing says, I want to be the AI leader by 2030, what do they, what do they have to do? Do they, do they have marching orders? Uh, do they follow what edicts? Yeah, again, I think it's one of those, I don't think there's some kind of secret cabal where there's, there's a meeting and, and everybody is being you know, specifically told what to do. But there is a um, complex system of social directives. Um, there's a, there are cultural differences. There are also economic incentives that sort of make it difficult to refuse. So when Xi Jinping um, made yet another announcement about China becoming the sort of global hegemon by the year 2030 in artificial intelligence, the implication was everybody's going to get in line and help out the cause. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm talking with Amy Webb. She's the author of The Big Nine, and we're at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Um, You know, when I hear Chinese leaders talk about AI, they seem very generous. They're going to share technology. Their one belt road initiative is going to help people out and bring them up to speed. And um, in your scenarios in The Big Nine, you kind of spiel that out as a control mechanism, right? And, And people have been talking about a new Cold War between the United States and China, and it sounds 
pretty wild. So when Chinese leaders are talking about that now, is their vision colonial in nature? So there are 58 pilot countries that are also now on the receiving end of fiber, of 5G technologies, of small cell, and of elements of the social credit score system. This seems anathema to us in the United States, but makes actually makes some sense in China. So going back millennia, China's got a huge geographic footprint. So you've got lots of people spread out all over the place. Um, you know, in order to create a sense of social harmony, there's a system of tattletaling. So if you step out of line, you break a rule or something, somebody tells somebody who then tells on you and tells on you and tells on you until it gets up to the right person and uh, you get into some kind of trouble. Algorithms automate that process. That is not necessarily all that strange in China, though it is being used to prevent lots of people from succeeding, from excelling, from getting access to things like plane tickets. But in a place like the Philippines, which currently has an autocratic leader, that culture doesn't exist. And so this technology is being deployed as a way to help other leaders around the world achieve their dreams of, of uh, you know, making citizens do, do whatever it is that they want. Um, so, so if you start connecting all of these dots and looking at all of the ancillary technologies and everything else, it's not difficult to envision a future in which all of these countries um, in lockstep with China are functioning very much on their own with AI at its core and the rest of the world gets locked out. When it comes to the uh, social credit score that you mentioned there, this gets a lot of attention. And in almost all the recent articles, they compare it to what's happening in Xinjiang. There's a crackdown on the Uyghurs there. And how surveillance-oriented is it? Because I've read articles that say, well, it's going actually pretty good. You, Everybody gets a good social credit score unless you break the law. And in this one town, the model town in China, nobody jaywalks now and nobody goes out into the street and cars stop for pedestrians. And it's going pretty great. And everybody... You know, thought, oh man, these new rules at first, but now they just don't jaywalk, and it's yeah. and everything's lovely. Sure, I think as long as you're not an ethnic minority, uh, things are probably okay. And as long as somebody's, I mean, this is the part of this is um, machine driven. Part of this is also human driven, right? So you can report somebody else for their meritorious work, uh, in which case they get points added, or for some kind of infraction, uh, in which case points are deducted. I mean, all I can tell you is 17.5 million people last year lost their ability to fly. 5.5 million people lost their ability to board a train. And this is publicly available data from the Chinese government. 300,000 people were eligible for promotions at work because they, they did superior work. However, their credit scores were too low and they were denied promotions. So that, you know, I don't know. I, I, and again, like, what does that matter to us? Right? We don't live in China, so who cares, right? We've got our own version of that, don't we? Well, so this is what I think is interesting. In China, this is a coordinated effort that is being uh, rolled out over time as one big national plan. I would argue that we've been asleep at the wheel. And the very same thing is happening here in the United States, not um, because of some national policy, but because of our free market system. And as a sort of unfortunate accident of all of the technologies that we use, we are being, in many ways, um, 
denied permissions to do things, to buy things, um, to get mortgages, to get into schools, to do all kinds of things because algorithms are making decisions on our behalf. So you write about a social caste system developing because of artificial intelligence, and this is, this is where that comes from. That's right. Here's an easy example that anybody can understand. Apple Watches. So Apple Watches are super expensive. They're neat technologies. They're very expensive. They have recently deployed a new system to help um, figure out if you have a heart condition, right? So there you go. If you can afford to have an Apple Watch, um, you have access to better and more diagnostics than somebody who does not have an Apple Watch. Um, I know that seems like such a tiny, insignificant detail, but these details have a compounding effect over time. And we are starting to see a sort of new type of digital divide among haves and have-nots, and the haves you know, who not only have better access to diagnostics like this, but also have increased permissions. If you can afford to buy all of the Apple products, your privacy is being protected better than if you are somebody who, who cannot afford Apple products and are instead using the Android suite of products. So in the book, you have some of these future scenarios where the caste system floats out there and the rich people get Apple and the middle people get Google, different levels of Google, and the poor people get Amazon. Yeah, that's right. And again, I know that sounds like... And, and this stuff controls your entire house and owns all your data and is your thing. That's right. So, you know, this is not science fiction. All of this is rooted in data that are available today. Uh, and all I did was model that data. So at the moment, if you have, I think I should say the A word instead of her actual name just to prevent people listening for, from their devices going off. Um, so if, if you have her in your home, she is not interoperable with other devices, not easily. And the same is true with Google and the same is true with Apple. And over time, we're going to see a consolidation of products that we have and services and again, that leads to choices and decisions down the road. You went crazy over the Amazon uh, microwave oven recently. You thought that was a big step forward. I did. So for those of you who don't know, um, Amazon had this huge press conference. They announced like 80 different new products and services, most of had, which had to do with AI. At the very end was a microwave that you can talk to. And you may be wondering, why do I need to ask the microwave to pop my popcorn? Um, and a lot of people thought this was kind of a joke or a, or a footnote or something. For me, this was the most important and compelling part of the press conference because Amazon tracks your data up until the point at which a package is at your house. You know, once the package gets delivered, they don't know anything else about how you interact with whatever you've ordered. If you've got popcorn and you put your microwave popcorn in the microwave and you're talking to the microwave and telling it to pop the popcorn all of a sudden, Amazon knows that you have popped it. Um, they know how much you're popping, what time of day you're popping it, who in your household is popping it, and pretty soon they're going to know whether or not you've recently had a stroke and you're popping the popcorn, if you're manic, if you're happy, like all of these other things. And if we look outside to the fact that Amazon, Google, and Apple all have health initiatives and we now have devices that are reporting out our biometric data back into these systems, it's not inconceivable to me that if you're an Amazon family, you know, living on, on the lower end of the economic spectrum, somebody will have decided along the way that, that you need to be optimized for because you can't be left to handle your own, your own health. So when you go to put your popcorn in the microwave, 
the popcorn won't pop because you've hit your daily caloric limit for the day. Or that you know it's pretty nice outside and you live less than a mile away from work, so you can ride your bike. You don't have to drive. Or if you're in places around the country where there are water shortages, like Austin, Texas, you can get another use out of your jeans. You don't get to wash those. We have lost our ability to see what is happening. And what is happening is that we are slowly losing control. I'm talking with Amy Webb. She is the founder of Future Today Institute. And we're talking about the ideas in her book, The Big Nine. And we'll be back with more after the break. And we'll talk about some of the reforms and solutions she suggests. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm here with Amy Webb, and we're talking about the Big Nine, how tech titans and their thinking could warp humanity. We are recording this program before a live audience at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I want to get to the solutions that you propose in this uh, book, but they're very interesting. We didn't say much about U.S. leadership here, and uh, that's a big factor in when we're going to talk about solutions here. Uh, President Trump signed an executive order about AI. He allocated no money in the executive order. There is, it is no He allocated money. no words in that executive order either. It's a bunch of bullet points. Describe where the U.S. is at here. All right. So just quickly on that, that executive order that everybody got very excited about for five seconds, it is not self-executing. We do not have a department that can pull a singular department. We don't have budget. We don't have a national point of view. We don't have a national strategy. And unfortunately, artificial intelligence, along with other fundamental technologies like CRISPR and others, are subject to the revolving door of politics. I, I mean, how short-sighted are we? You know, we, we are a nation of nowists. We do not plan for the longer term. And we have come to a point in the development of our species where if we don't start making short-term sacrifices in the name of long-term good, we are going to be in a world of hurt. So we have no national strategy. We have no national policy. We have no leadership. As a result of that, the future of artificial intelligence and its developmental track has essentially been left to these big tech companies to sort through and figure out on their own. And while I do not believe that these tech companies nor their leaders necessarily intend to unleash harm upon the world, you know, the reality is that our, our free market system incentivizes profit. It in- incentivizes uh, speed over safety. Now, you've got a few suggestions about what the U.S. could do, and some of it is allocate money for this. Um, U.S. research and development budget is $13.7 billion total for everything. That's for space. That's Outside for of everything. military, right. And the G-Mafia, the, the, the U.S. tech companies, they're doing $63 billion themselves. Uh, so we're allocating the R&D to them. And they are they feel an obligation to get that money back in profits first before they do the social good thing that maybe the government would prefer. 
Yeah, so um, the acronym that I've got for the, the big six companies in the United States are the G-Mafia. It's Google, IBM, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. Everybody's woken up to this being a problem. So we've got universities all across the country who are now launching their own initiatives. Individual states are launching their own AI commissions. So like now, in, in the absence of any national leadership, we have a free market approach to solving the problem. And so what we're going to wind up with is 16 different ideas about what ethics should look like. Now they're competing for foundation funding and attention and talent and leadership. And, you know, it was interesting, you, you, you suggest a national service program for AI for the United States. That's right. So there's like zero incentive beyond a sense of civic duty to go into government work right now to work on AI when the benefits are incredibly competitive and compelling um, in, in the private sector. For contrast, you know, in China, there is a textbook that is being released this year on the fundamentals and principles of AI that is gonna be in every single school, not high school, but kindergarten. So not everybody is gonna become a machine learning expert, but the fact that they have invested so heavily in their education system, and I can name 15 cities in the United States where kids can't, there are no textbooks in schools, is yet another example of how we keep short shrifting our futures for current present day gain. Um, you talk about reinstating the Office of Technology Assessment, which is something we did away with, I think, when Clinton was president? Yes, it was part of Newt Gingrich's contract on America uh, when, we, when, we, when it got defunded. The OTA uh, was a nonpartisan group of scientists, physicists, biologists, uh, mathematicians, ethicists, philosophers, uh, whose, whose sole purpose it was to educate our policymakers so that they made smarter decisions. It's all they did. And uh, relative to the rest of the budget, it cost next to nothing. And now in absence of that, we essentially have left all of this work up to lobbyists and special interest groups. And uh, you have a suggestion. We all know about the Center for Disease Control. You think it should be disease and data control. I do. And in fact, I think we ought, given where we are with technology, we should probably, you know, do, this is totally going to be unpopular, but I think we should rethink all of our departments uh, and rethink what they do and streamline their work and overhaul how the entire government works. I know that's like a, like, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but the CDC already has a model for collecting health data uh, and, and, and also being a public face of, um, of health. You know, we don't think about our digital health. We don't think about our digital literacy as, as part of our um, approach to how we live and exist. Um, so, so housing it in a place where there are already some core fundamentals to me makes some sense. Your big idea in the book is a global institution. The U.S. doesn't seem to want to make global institutions these days or maybe even be a part of them that, that much. But uh, you suggest global alliance on intelligence augmentation. You know, Gaia, Mother Earth. <laughs> we need an international body. Uh, and we have precedent for this. Um, Bretton Woods is, is a, you know, is a precedent for how this could work. But the only way that we can move forward is collaboration. And that collaboration has to be around shared economic incentives. It has to be a shared approach to ethics and values. 
Um, you know, and, and it has to be our big six and China's three and various governments working together. I'm talking with Amy Webb. We're talking about her book, The Big Nine. And if you're interested in knowing what the six big uh, tech companies that she's writing about here are, it's Google, IBM, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. I wanted to um, ask a question about how this uh, would work, this, this large international institution. You've, you've thought it out seriously. You want to put it in Montreal. You want to do, you've got a whole, uh, you've got a 15-point agenda for it. Um, explain really where you're going there. Sure. So there are a bunch of things that, that need to happen. Um, we need to audit all of the databases uh, and, and shore them up. We need to come up with not regulations, because regulations would wind up being outdated by the time they went into to, to practice, but instead guardrails. And, and the guardrails for AI are only going to work if there are economic incentives and um, global agreements to help make that enforcement happen. Um, companies have to be more transparent in how their systems work, and they need to be open to inspection. There are ways of doing this uh, without violating IP. International inspections? That's right. Um, Yikes. Okay, but again, just recently we saw the first example of artificial general intelligence, which is a machine that is capable of doing many different things at one time. Google's DeepMind, which I actually write extensively about, um, released an, yet another new system called uh, Alpha Zero, which is capable of learning multiple games at one time. The longer that we put this off, the more that we are all going to diverge. The United the companies are gonna go their own way. Canada recently came up with its own proposal for AI ethics systems as a, as a nation. Artificial intelligence doesn't care where we live. They don't just stop working when you cross a state line into Indiana. It's not like fireworks. Uh, you know, this is, not, this is not that, right? And I'm concerned that if we're waiting for some big, like I've, I've already seen big catastrophes. I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know if it's going to take an alien invasion. I don't know. But the longer that we put this off, the harder the work is going to be. And my concern is that while everybody is using past references as predictors for what the future is going to look like, they are missing the signals in the present. Our future wars will be fought in economic terms, not the usual ways, which means that you know China could wage war on us by cutting intermittently our power sources. Like that seems pretty innocuous, but it would it would wreak chaos. It would make your job difficult to do on the radio. Yes. It would make our markets uh, glitchy and unpredictable. So there is precedent. Um, you can look at the IAEA. You can look at Bretton Woods. I mean, there, there are many different examples where there has been cause for countries around the world to work alongside each other and companies to develop a set of systems that are enforceable, that help us all go into the future in a smarter way. The leaders in the world, they all say, well, we're all about sharing and talking about this. Vladimir Putin says it. Uh, they all want to share technology, get together in a meeting like this. and, and uh, you I've know, been really... in some of those meetings. And w- There's a lot of sharing. There's no doing afterwards. I mean, you know, we, we have to, everybody, this is, this is why this is challenging, but it's also why um, the type of sweeping antitrust policy and legislation that Elizabeth Warren um, announced a couple of weeks ago, that's why this doesn't work. Because in order for all of us to win, in order for humanity to win, these companies have to win. 
And and the reason for that is because in the absence of the G Mafia in the United States, nobody else is building out a shared cloud service. Where's the government going to go? Is the government going to make its own gigantic cloud service? You know, the answer to that is no, it's not. So we actually need these companies to, and, and we need them to collaborate and we need them to collaborate not just with each other, but but with the government. And then we need to develop incentives for our governments to work together. The more antagonistic these relationships become, the worse off our future is. I mean, you describe it as transactional, the relationship between the... On a good day. Uh, on a good day between the U.S. And, right. and these six tech companies. And, uh, you know, I mean, Google got some grief for uh, doing a military contract. and uh, But sometimes they... They seem to work things out for liver problems or something, uh, kidney we issues. We are or... poor students of history. The government has always worked with big technology companies on defense. It has to. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently. The problem is when there's no transparency. And you can have transparency without divulging what the specific problems are that are being worked on. If you enjoy living in Chicago... Uh, without worrying that something horrible is going to you know, happen to your apartment where you live, that's because we have a strong defense. Um, and, and peacetime takes effort, work, technology, you know, all, all of those things. So again, these are, these are complicated issues. On top of, yes, Google is working on um, fundamentally life-changing, in a positive way, health issues, as is Amazon, as is Apple, as is Microsoft and IBM and not Facebook. <laughs> um, how do you kind of regulate these large companies? Because you've got a list of suggestions for lots of things and ways they best practices for them to behave, but you do not come out for government regulation very uh, closely. Right. So regulation for uh, various reasons in this case is not going to work. It will stifle growth in negative ways. It'll probably wind up being outdated by the time it goes into effect, and I could go on and on. So instead, there are ways to uh, use, again, like economic incentives. So we could talk about, I know nobody likes this, um, but uh, providing new tax breaks, uh, salary offsets, which in some ways would enable these companies to make more money. But it would also bring everybody to the table so that they are collaborating in the public interest. The U.S. seems pretty far gone here. Can you identify anyone who, any political figure who gets it, who you see out there on the horizon? Put me on the spot. Um, here's what I would say. Uh, I would say that I regularly meet with very smart people who work at the State Department, who are career government workers, who work at OSTP, who work in the Pentagon, there are really smart people who get technology. The challenge is that government works by consensus. Uh, and when you have consensus to contend with, you wind up with slow action. Um, the flip side of that you know, is true in the Valley, where consensus is oftentimes overridden by, you know, again, like speed, speed and failing fast and all the, the stuff that you've heard. Just, these are opposing forces. There are some very smart people who work in places that work as sort of in-betweens between government and the valley. But 
a few people here and there aren't enough. We need to create a groundswell. And by the way, not just at the federal level, but at our, at the state level too. And not just in government, but in universities. And not just in universities, but in, in high schools. And in the public. It seems like you put, the public is need, needs to ask something, but it doesn't know what to ask for, really. Well, the easiest thing to ask is, who is taking our data and for what purposes? You have to stop and ask yourself that all the time. Uh, and if you're okay with the answer, great. Um, if you don't have an answer, then seek it out. And if you're uncomfortable with the answer, then shut off the tap. What are you comfortable with? Um, I'm a public person and I'm a pragmatist, so I understand that there's a lot of data of me um, that, that's out there. However, I'm very careful and cautious about who has access to other parts of my life. You know, and Google Google had this this thing where you could like upload a photo of your face and see which person in a painting you, you look like. Um, you know, that's something I didn't do uh, because I knew how my face was going to be used. So at some point we have to stop and ask what we're trading for convenience and for cool apps. I'm talking with Amy Webb. Uh, we're talking about a book, The Big Nine, and how the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. We're going to be back after the break, and we'll take some questions from the audience here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs in their Robert R. McCormick Foundation Hall at the base of the Prudential Building with real live people. So we're going to let them ask some questions. And we're here with Amy Webb. She's the author of The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Sir, you have the first question. Oxford's uh, Nick Bostrom claims that uh, artificial superintelligence is a very near-term possibility and one that would only give nominal economic benefits until he sees it becoming an existential threat to humanity. Um, What do you make of claims like these, particularly given, as you pointed out, that international cooperation on ethical standards seems almost impossible? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Just for those who are not already familiar with these terms, Artificial narrow intelligence is the spam filter in your email. It's the beep beeps when you back up your car. Artificial general intelligence is the point at which a, an AI system is capable of uh, general decision making um, that at the same level that, that we can make those decisions or better. There is a theoretical artificial super intelligence, um, which are systems that essentially make us look like chimpanzees at a city council meeting. Um, so the question was in reference to ASI, or artificial superintelligence. Um, so is it plausible that ASI systems could run amok? And the challenge, of course, with AI is that uh, any programmable system will continue to just uh, do what it has been programmed to do until it, it has exhausted all of its resources. Here's what I would say. I would say that, um, because this is a question I get asked a lot, when and, and then what? Um, our obsession with when is artificial general intelligence or when is artificial super intelligence and, um, is totally misguided 
because in order to answer that question when, we would have to have a singular agreement on what. And the problem is that, as far as I'm concerned, we've already seen evidence of artificial general intelligence. And, and um, it's not a walking, talking robot. It doesn't look like one of the droids, you know, or the hosts from Westworld. It's a computer program. Um, but we see evidence of it now. And the very fact that we see evidence of that now should be a giant wake-up call. That's our alien invasion. That alone should have united us all. Um, you know, so, so if our sights are fixed on the far future and the paper clips and the artificial superintelligent robot takeover, um, then that scenario is, is going to happen because it means that we won't have reversed engineered back to the present day the solutions that are plausibly in front of us right now to solve our existing problems. Sir. Okay, uh, you seem like a very heroic figure, and I'm wondering where on the planet is your nemesis and do you know who it is? Um, that's a terrific question. Um, I'll tell you who my nemesis is. Um, my nemesis is any person who is not curious um, you know, and that's probably a lot of people. And, and the problem is that we can't just take the future for granted. It, it doesn't show up fully formed. Uh, my job, my day-to-day -day job, I'm a quantitative futurist, and my job is to model risk using data that are, and signals that are available. Um, so those who are closed-minded or, or who would prefer to look in the past because that's more comfortable, people who are afraid to confront deep uncertainty because it's anxiety-producing, those people are my nemesis. I will do everything I possibly can to help show them a, a better path forward. Um, but I feel like that should be everybody's goal. Uh, the flip side of that question is up on the screen here. Um, where are the good futurist thinkers? Now that I guess Georgetown and Stanford is looking for some, or is there a crop out there? Yeah, so I'm a futurist. Our, our work has been around for a century. Um, I, I teach this at NYU. Uh, there's a strong tradition of strategic foresight in the Nordics. So Norway, Sweden, um, you know, Finland especially, there are plenty of graduate programs. Uh, China, Asia, uh, Japan, um, you know, again, all have very strong traditions of strategic foresight. In the United States, I think we are somewhat hampered. Um, you know, all of, uh, all of the things that have made us so successful as a young country and have, have helped all of our businesses thrive and our government become a model of democracy most of the time. Uh, the, you know, these are the same things that um, force us to constantly look at now versus the, the farther future, so. You, do you suggest in the book that a lot of these large uh, titans of the tech industry take in ethicists and people uh, who are thinkers rather than just tech people. Um, it, do you see that happening? I do see um, some impetus because there's been a lot of public outcry. And again, I think these companies are, are very interested in staving off regulation. So making big um, initiatives where they're bringing on ethicists and philosophers and other kinds of people like that, that will go a long way, I think, to, to changing some public perception. However, you can't just have your philosophy department within Google cordoned off, you know, and maybe they produce a white paper or some ideas every now and then. The, 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 one of the big changes that I'm suggesting is that um, we rethink 
all of the computer science departments so that somebody graduating with a CS degree hasn't had like a class in diversity that they can now check off their list, but has been seriously cross-trained in um, comparative lit and world religions and you know different types of philosophy. Again, I know that's a tall order, but this is the best way to prepare ourselves for the future. And it's a good way to make sure that once they get into these companies, that, that their worldviews have been broadened um, and, that, and that there would not be a need to have a chief data ethics officer um, because everybody's already thinking in that direction. But sorry, in the meantime, we need to have chief ethics officers at these companies. <laughs> This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're taking questions at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs with Amy Webb, the author of The Big Nine, about how the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. I was just reading an article about Japan. They have a new software to catch shoplifters before they shoplift or something. And they're using facial recognition technology to do this. Uh, This is... Uh, what are there other countries out there that are uh, big that are doing things that you would like to mention? I know Saudi Arabia's got some strange ideas. Japan yeah. seems to be able to do anything it wants with robots and things. Um, you know, Japan. So I think again, it's useful for us to think about the contours of of society and culture within the realm of technology and, and our and the various legal systems around the world. Um, Saudi Arabia is working on a universal genetic database. So for those of you who have scraped the inside of your cheeks for your sort of 23andMe and Ancestry.com to find out what percent Irish you are um, so that you can dress in more green, I guess, on, you know, or whatever. The Saudis um, got it? So one of the things that they are proposing is a universal database that they can track all of their citizens using, which sounds very scary, there are plenty of law enforcement agencies here in the United States that would like to also have a universal genetic database. And it makes sense from their point of view so that they can more easily uh, solve crimes. On the other hand, we know that there are problems within these systems and we ought to think some of this through. That was scary. <laughs> We've got another question from the audience. Um, as a student, how do you believe that artificial intelligence will impact the way that I look at jobs in the future? Lots of different ways. So that's a great question. Um, let me start with something very practical, your resume. So at most, it, when, by the time that you're out in the workforce, a lot of companies will be using AI as their screening. So that's good, it's, it's efficient. On the other hand, it could mean that you're discriminated against in ways that may not even make sense to you. Um, we've already started to see this happen for people going into certain fields like computer science and and AI, these systems have been trained to identify certain skill sets. So if you are somebody who's taken poetry or comparative governments or or political science or whatever, that I think would make you better at your job, that you might actually get... um, marked against like that, that those those things that that would make you a better employee uh, at, at that first round of screening could actually work against you because of how some of these systems have been built a lot of people think about the future of the workforce and whether or not they're still going to have jobs you know an uncomfortable truth that again it would be wise for us to acknowledge now is that a lot of people are going to be out of work and there is probably no way to retrain those people um, so we ought to think about building 
a social trampoline versus a social safety net to help people as they are obviated out of their work because of automation, find new purpose um, and, and get some help uh, on, on the way to that. So, you know, that's, that's what I would say. Sir, in hearing, you know, when people talk about AI um, and working with it in the past, it seems to me that you always hear about it in terms of either governments are doing it or companies are doing it. Do you think there's a future that exists where, I guess, more of the power lies with individual people? Yeah, so just because you know, these nine companies are not the only ones in the AI space. However, it's their custom frameworks, it's their code, it's their data sets, they have the majority of patents. So, so, so they are very much in charge of the ecosystem. However, there's plenty of work being done by uh, startups, by individuals. I mean, you could throw a rock right now in the city of Chicago and hit an AI startup. So there's, there's work being done all over the place. However, nobody is truly independent because all of these companies in some way, at some point, wind up on a path that leads to one of these nine companies. Amy Webb's new book out this month is The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great conversation, Amy. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. That's going to do it for our show today at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We'll be back next month for a panel discussion on the elections in India. Worldviews produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ian Whitaker, Victoria Williams, and Andy Charnecki, and the rest of our partners here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.